0: Welcome to the Runners Connect Run to the Top Podcast, where it's all about learning from the best minds in the sport, so you can train smarter, stay healthy, and run faster now. And now your host, Tina Muir.
1: Hello, this is Tina Muir. I'd like to welcome you to another episode of the Runners Connect Run to the Top Podcast. Now, my job at Runners Connect, we get a lot of comments, questions, and concerns about various topics, but by far the biggest topic that people want to know about is weight loss. Our posts about losing weight are some of our most popular posts. And I'm guessing that almost all of us have thought about how we could use running to keep the weight off at some point in the past. After all, isn't that one of the biggest benefits of running? Well, actually, maybe not. After talking to my guest today in this eye opening podcast, I now know that actually this isn't really the case. Exercise, or running for most of us, allows us to tolerate more carbohydrates, and means we can use the carbohydrates we consume to fuel our runs and our workouts. But as my guest today stated, ounces are lost in the gym, pounds are lost in the kitchen. Not just that, but if you actually work out too hard, you're less likely to lose weight. What helps you lose weight is actually exercising easy, often. As this is a topic that so many of us are curious about. I'm sure you're going to enjoy it. My guest today is so knowledgeable and has so many insights. He talks about exercise snacks in the podcast, but he himself offers lots of knowledge snacks. I just made that up, but it seemed to fit with what we're talking about here. So I know you're going to enjoy this podcast. So let's talk more about who Dr. Mark Cucuzella is so we can get on with this interview. He's a professor and family medicine doctor at West Virginia University, was a lieutenant colonel in the Air Force Reserves, is the chief medical consultant of the Air Force Marathon, owns Two River Treads, which is a center for national running and walking, and is the executive director of Natural Running Center. Mark has been featured in the New York Times, Air Force Times, Outside Magazine, Runner's World, and NPR. Some pretty reputable publications there. Today, Mark and I are going to talk about the real reason why you might be putting on weight, even if you're running regularly, the difference between training and straining, what exercise snacks are and why you need to add them to your day, what traits to look for in a physician to know if they really will be able to help you with your running injuries. I know I'm not the only one who gets frustrated with some doctors. And how to determine if a runner has heat stroke or hyponatremia and what you need to do about it. So that's enough from me. Ready to meet Mark? Welcome to the Round to the Top podcast, Mark.
0: Well, it's glad to be back, Tina.
1: It's great to have you back. I haven't actually spoken to you before, but I, I did listen to the previous interview, and I guess you can listen to that. I'm going to put a link to that on the show notes. But for now, we're going to have a brand new interview. I'm going to try and not go over the same things we did last time. But obviously, there is going to be some overlap. So I just wanted to kind of start with, um, you've worked a lot with Tim Noakes, who we've interviewed in the past. But what has that been like working with Tim Noakes, knowing he's such a you know, power player within the running world right now?
0: I've had the privilege of, of helping on a sports medicine course in South Africa with Tim. So I've followed his work my whole life. And what was really neat was about three years ago, we went down to do a course in South Africa around the same time as the Comrades. And I had been working on a lot of nutritional issues in West Virginia, mostly dealing with kind of reversal of what we'd been told in medical school. You know, I went through <laughs> traditional medical training, and we all kind of learned the same mantra and, uh, you know, burn more than you eat, eat the heart-healthy, low-fat diet. And as a runner, I kind of got away with that because I was probably carbohydrate-tolerant. But I never saw my patients succeed that way, and we were all taught to just tell them to try hotter. And it wasn't working, and I got assigned to an Air Force project about four to five years ago, trying to help people with the fitness test, and immediately uh, discovered that the problem wasn't so much a lack of fitness, but obesity was driving the failure rates. So I spent probably one to two months just reading about nutrition. You know, I had 50 books, you know, wow. <laughs> similar to me to Tim, you know, and then like one book led to another, and I started to question everything. And I came to the conclusion that everything I had learned in medical school was wrong. <laughs> I tried it myself. Uh, I was, uh, you know, your usual runner wake up big bowl of whole grain oats with skim milk with maybe some fruit. and hungry mid morning, do the same thing. Hungry at lunch, have more carbohydrate pasta for dinner uh, before bedtime. I would need more uh, skim milk and cereal because I was hungry and wake up, eat more cereal, repeat. And then I, started to read and understand it. And I, I think that was my last bowl of cereal was four or five years ago. So I didn't wow. have a problem with obesity, but my problem was I was just chasing carbohydrates because I was running and could get away with it. But uh, people weren't running. They couldn't get away with it. They were developing metabolic syndrome. So Tim was giving a lecture on nutrition and I really didn't know everything he was up to with nutrition until I heard his talk. And it was it was just wild that across the planet You know, here he is talking about the same exact things. And and when Tim comes out and says something and kind of makes his case, you know, he's spent five years, you know, digging into it and studying it before he's going to come out and say, I think this is true. So I felt kind of validated that, all right, he's done a lot of the heavy lifting and come to a lot of the same conclusions. So he's changing the world down there in South Africa. And that's kind of our goal here in West Virginia. We have grants. With the USDA, with farmer markets, we're teaching medical students how to cook. Uh, we just had a two day course teaching medical students physical activity and nutrition and all of the same principles that Tim is trying to share down in South Africa. So, yeah, it's a journey and, you know, you bang your head against a lot of authority and, but you move forward.
1: So for those listeners who may not have heard of Tim Noakes or what he talks about with uh, the diet and how you've changed your diet, what kind of things would people want to do if they wanted to kind of follow his guidelines?
0: And I think what what Tim's trying to do is just, uh, we're all different. And, you know, there's no one healthy, perfect diet. I mean, that's, that's hogwash. I mean, you look around the world, there are healthy people eating a variety of foods. So I think what we need to look at is people's metabolic profile. So you could go over to very active cultures, and they can eat a traditional diet, which includes a lot of carbohydrates. They're very active. So there are plenty of traditional diets that have a ton of carbohydrates. Look at the Kenyans. They eat almost all carbohydrates when they're running. But the problem is in America, and you're, you're, you're in Kentucky, correct, Tina? Yes. So you're in the same kind of, we oh, call yeah. it the diabetes belt, the obesity belt, the depression belt, the sadness belt. I mean, it all travels together of uh, neurologic diseases all follow suit too. So metabolically, if you cannot handle the carbohydrates, whether it's your genetic profile, inactivity, you can't eat like that because your body is carbohydrate resistant. Meaning like you and I can go out for a run. You know, I just came back from a run and I could have some carbohydrate because insulin's doing its job. My muscles are carbohydrate sensitive. You know, I had a couple whole grain muffins with my dinner tonight, which was meatloaf and some grilled zucchini. And I'm okay. I can tolerate that. I'll be ready to go run tomorrow. I just stored the carbohydrate for tomorrow's exercise. But if my body's carbohydrate resistant, what's going to happen if I eat that same meal, which has significant carbohydrate, You know, your sugar level is going to go up, which is going to drive your insulin levels up. And that's going to shift to more of a storage as fat because the muscles really don't have any capacity to deal with the carbohydrate. So I would consider myself as a runner a low-carbohydrate eater, but I can tolerate more carbohydrates than I would recommend to a a diabetic. I'm talking about type 2 diabetes, not type 1, because their level of carbohydrate tolerance is much less than mine. And what we're really talking about is overall health. I mean, I think a lot of the running crowd and community really wants to focus on performance, but I'm a physician dealing with people in hospitals with heart attacks, diabetes, strokes, neurovascular disease, everything so health is really primary and the metabolic diseases travel with the diet you know you can't run away from a bad diet
1: yeah that's funny you bring that up we actually uh just released a post on runners connect when this comes out it will be live about exactly testing that theory and uh you know that if the furnace is hot enough it'll burn anything and it's funny you mentioned that exact thing because that's kind of what we found that, yeah, you can't run away from a bad diet. And can you kind of elaborate on that just a little bit about people who think, well, I run so I can eat what I want? You know, we've all been guilty oh, of that.
0: <laughs> uh, it's a great question. And I think every, you know, I'm 48 and I, I think every runner who's been running for a significant number of years kind of comes to the day where, okay, the, things aren't working the same. And a perfect example, and I shot a video of this and, and he shared a post, is Dave McGilbray. So the race director of the Boston Marathon. So 2014, I helped with the Boston Marathon Sports Med Conference. And Dave came into that conference to thank many of the doctors who were in the room who were at the med tent in 2013 when the bombs went off. And he just uh, off the cuff shared his story of coronary disease. And that was his message completely. He said he said the exact words. He said, well, I always thought if the furnace is hot enough, it'll burn anything off. And he was differentiating what was happening with him. So what he described was he was out running and he felt just discomfort. He didn't know what it was, but it wasn't normal. And he went to doctor after doctor after doctor and finally got to the the right doctor, who's also a runner, who gave him what, what Dave describes as the big boy test, you know, kind of looking under the hood. And sure enough, he had significant coronary artery disease. Here's a guy who's run across the country twice, you know, done 100 marathons and, you know, felt he was fit, which was true. But what he didn't realize, he was fit but not healthy. So... He changed, and in that, I have that link, that little video link, and maybe you could share it out on yeah, my yeah. store page. You know, so in four minutes, he describes the whole thing, you know, so what he did was he changed everything about the diet, and he just comes right out and says that. He just changed everything about the diet. In his video, he says he lost over 20 pounds, his cholesterol went down, and he just finished the Ironman triathlon this fall, Hawaii Ironman, after, I think, about a 30-year hiatus you know, he also had a lot of stress going on, I'm sure, after 2013. There's a lot that leads to coronary disease, but we know, you know, a bad diet is is right up there on top.
1: It's something you can actually uh, take care of yourself as well.
0: Yeah, you can mitigate that. You know, stress you can mitigate, your genes you can't, but uh, most of the contributors of coronary disease, uh, it's self-inflicted, you know, your lifestyle drives it. Mm-hmm.
1: Definitely. And we did actually interview Dave at the beginning of the year um, and he did talk about his story. So yeah, that was very interesting. And I will put a link to your video just because
0: it's not mine. Yeah. He yeah. Did, it's here. a
1: short, um, if that's a short clip of him, then that, that's probably a better, um, easier for people to consume and enjoy. So then let's talk about you. You know, you've just mentioned that you, you are a doctor, you're a family practice doctor, and I'm actually very jealous of your patients. As you understand running um, as runners, we tend to hate going to the doctor because you know the answer to everything is well stop running or you know (laughs) seems to be um but do you have any insight or any idea on how people can find a good doctor someone who you know not necessarily a good doctor but someone who will understand them who will listen give advice um that will help kind of run us heal rather than just rest
0: yeah i think what you said there is listen is probably a key thing i teach medical students and residents so if you if you don't listen to a patient or understand them from their side or have empathy, you can't help them. So if you go into any doctor's office and they're not listening to you, I think right away, there's probably no way they can help you. And I, I go into medicine and I share this with my students. I, I use what's called the beginner's mind and it comes from a little skinny book. It's called Zen: the beginner's mind and the beginner's mind were open to possibilities and the expert's mind, the possibilities are few. So if your doctor has an open mind to your ideas, because everything changes. And I, I think this is Tim Noakes's quote, half of what he learned in medical school was wrong. He just didn't know what half it was. And that is true. I was told in year 2000 not to run. I had bad arthritis in my feet, uh, had pretty much fused first toe joints, and they were bent in at about 30 degrees, mostly from, you know, kind of crappy footwear, which was squeezing my toes and probably too much traumatic running. And the message was don't run. And I think what saved me from that was I did go to medical school, and already in 2000, having been in the field for five years, I realized that most of what we learned was highly debatable. So I took that opinion, and I said, have a nice day, had my surgery to at least get some mobility back in my feet, started walking, and I missed running. There's something about running that anyone who runs, it's, you know, I think of uh, my cousin who's uh, above me amputee described it when she first got her running leg. She hadn't run in over 13 years. Meaning, she had at least one foot on the ground at any time. You know, she was able to walk, and she never considered herself kind of a, a runner or a sporty type. And then a prosthetist said, "Just try this. Put on the running leg." And she tried it. She tried it. Failed. 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 Couldn't figure it out. And then she got it. She was in the air two feet at the same time. Which you know, it sounds pretty simple, but there's some, I think there's something magic to that, and that's what I missing. Sure. So I went and started slow jogging. And, you know, anyone who I know, Jeff, you know, really understands aerobic development. So if you can slow jog pain free, you're ultimately going to get your speed back because that's how you build up everything. So I started jogging ridiculously slow. And in six months, I I ran like a 228 at the Marine Corps Marathon for third place off of like no what, you know, the runner types would call real running. No intervals, no speed work, no tempo runs, basically jogging around the park with my dog all at a very easy heart rate. But yeah, and then that, that was my last running injury was 2000, knock on wood. You know? Wow, doing pretty well. <laughs> See what happens. I, have, I mean, I'll take days off, but I haven't had a you know missed day because of a pain or an injury in 15 years, and probably 40-plus marathons in those 15 years.
1: So what do you attribute
0: that to? Slow running. <laughs> okay. Total recovery. I mean, I'm learning new stuff all the time. I mean, I think right now I, I, I value sleep and nutrition way more than I did, you know, getting older. Um, After I had my surgeries, I started to read into, you know, Phil Mappetone's work and aerobic development. I didn't understand any of that. I was a college runner, and we just run harder and faster. And that was probably my savior to get back to running because, you know, I was convinced after reading all that, well, gosh, you know, you can actually run slow, and, and I'll just try it, you know, like anything. Just try it and see where it takes you. So I'm in Washington Park in Denver. You know, there's this little beautiful loop. Anyone who's from Colorado, I lived a block from that park. And, you know, I used to go out and run easy days at six minutes a mile or something. And I did the Maffetone heart rate method. And I'm running like 11 minutes a mile at my aerobic or ventilatory threshold heart rate. Didn't go a step above that. You know, a month later, 10 minutes a mile. A month later, nine minutes a mile. And by the Marine Corps Marathon, I'm running like, gosh, at altitude, like a 630 mile at a heart rate of 150, you know, you can eat lunch at that pace. And I uh, went through that marathon, and uh, you know, a few weeks later and felt like I could turn around and do it again. And that's when I kind of got it. It was like every session you do, any training session, if you don't feel like you could turn around and do it again, you probably weren't training. You're probably maladapting and straining. So training is just an adaptation. I mean, what is it that you want to do? You know, go slow. Um, I do a lot of skill work, drills, skips, strides. You know, they call it in the linear terms, alactic sprints. You know, so keeping your coordination and skill, range of motion. I do lift cal kettle- I do all the little things now in a simple way that doesn't take time to compensate for what happens as you get older, you know, which is you get less mobile and weaker, which isn't inevitable. That means you need to stop just running straight ahead <laughs> and do more things, you know, that keep you limber you know, keep the mobile stuff, we all have same language.
1: Yeah, and with the, uh, you know, you talked about drills there, and you said, you know, I'm guessing it's not, even though you're saying you should use them more as you do get older, you don't have to, this isn't uh, primarily for people who are getting older, this is, you know, everyone should be incorporating it in. But do you want to talk, tell us a little about uh, which drills, and, you know, I've seen videos of you using a razor scooter, Uh, trampoline, jump rate, very creative methods of uh, doing drills and exercises. Do you want to just expand on that a little for our listeners to hear your side of that?
0: I think there's like drills you might do at the end of a run, which are structured. And then there's maybe we'd call them drills or just exercise snacks that as a human being you do all day. So I'm I'm sitting here in a comfy chair because it's Friday, but pretty much I don't sit. I have a stand-up desk, so I have some hip mobility, you know, exercises i can do while typing emails um i do i'll hang out in a squat with you know playing scrabble with my kids or giving my dog a tummy rub you know spend Mm -hmm. five or ten minutes a day just like anyone in a developing country in a squat position you know keeping that ankle mobility Uh, i'll do a lot of just uh playing you know i'll throw the frisbee you know you run sideways you jump i'll go to the pool every day on a razor scooter with my kids they'll ride their bike you know, so that's a good, you know, half mile to a mile of razor scooting. I do jump rope, you know, maybe a minute or two a day, you know, alternate one foot, one foot, the, the other foot, because if you can, you know, stick the landing quickly on one foot and get off the ground, it's, that's like, that's running. You know, if you can't stick a landing on one foot and get off the ground stable and quickly, you probably honestly don't have any business running. You're going to hurt yourself. And then after a run, so if I have on a good day, I'll have an hour. I mean, I'd like to have an hour because it's kind of that time of peace. But, you know, prior to getting older, I would just go run an hour. But now what I'll do is maybe I'll I've run enough straight ahead in my life, so I'll maybe run 40 minutes. If I have an hour, I'll do 10 minutes of basic track stuff, you know, A, B, C, D skips with strides. And then I'll do some lateral stuff, karaoke. I'll do some burpees, mountain climbers. You know, I'll go down to my basement. You know, I have like three to four different kettlebell exercises that take, you know, three times a week. It takes five minutes. And I'll do dynamics, you know, so I have a series of little dynamic drills I'll do when I get back from running, you know, the world's greatest stretch, sumo stretch. We have those linked on our website. Real simple. You know, I think if you give yourself too many things to try to do, you won't do any of them. So keep it simple and mix it up. You know, every day, if I don't have time to, you know, do something one day, I'll try to do it the next day. But just try it, you know, if you can't find time to do the sprints and the skips, you know, something's going to give because that's what keeps the fascia kind of limber and stiff, which you need. You know, so I foam roll too, you know, in the morning time. You know, I think people have this reflex when they wake up in the morning, you know, they go open their email inbox and start checking their email. And already, if you do that, your day is already controlled by other people. But if you hit the coffee on button and you spend five or ten minutes foam rolling, you know, the, everyone has a different area they need to foam roll. But, you know, I, I think that's just, it's priceless. You know, it's got to make a habit of it and then it you feel okay now i'm good i can stand up straight days ready to begin yeah i mean people just need to find things that kind of give a good response you know so if you do something and all right every day i know this uh a little bit of work but i feel good afterwards you know so if you do strides skips after every run it's a little bit of an effort but you know afterwards everything's kind of reset you know everything's kind of symmetric again and that's then you can recover so if you you recover in something stiff or crooked or asymmetric because you haven't really mobilized that, and you start recovering in that position. Repeat. You know that could. I mean, we don't have data on all this because everyone's an experimental one, but you know, physiologically and mechanically, anything that sets off restrictions and asymmetries is probably going to downstream lead to an injury if you try to, you know, load up the system and run fast.
1: Yeah. A lot, a lot of great advice. there. I mean, that's action packed. I have to say I am one of those people that's guilty of just getting up and walking straight to the (laughs) computer to start my (laughs) work. But but, no, that's a good way to think about it. And that maybe I should consider it. And anyone listening right now, you know, are are you really putting yourself as a priority? You know, we hear a lot about the uh, some of the most successful business people in the world, they don't go straight to their computer, they wake up and they meditate for an hour or they you know, do things to work on their personal self. So you're right that, you know, it's better to get the day started correctly rather than just jumping into it. And like you said, letting others control, control us. So that, that's really good there. I just want to ask one more thing about being a physician before we move on. I know you said that, you know, listening is the big thing, but if someone's not really able to tell, if the doctor's kind of just telling them, you know, yes, yes, you can do this, but then not actually listening, is there any advice you have for that?
0: You know, I I think physicians who have good relationships with other allied health folks because we all have a role. So a good physician, so they may not know all the functional movement screens and sports rehab and overuse injuries, but if they know, okay... This is a runner, they have an overuse injury, but my friend who's a physical therapist is an expert in this. So instead of, uh, I think one of the most harmful things that can happen in a medical, uh, uh, you know, basic Western medical office is you get prescribed a non-steroidal, you know, a Motrin or an ibuprofen because you, something hurts. And uh, that's completely backwards because those medications have so much harm attributed to them. They inhibit normal healing, they, uh, the normal inflammatory process of overuse and repair. So, and uh, just this week, they've been linked to increased risk of coronary disease. Mm-hmm. My last uh, dose of those medications uh, sent me to a, a stomach ulcer in a hospitalization in college, you know, because we were all taking that stuff, we were all hurt, and I was uh, feeling weaker and weaker, and, you know, I'm a knucklehead 18-year-old, and I just thought, well, maybe I'm under-trained, maybe I'm overtrained. and my roommate one day noticed I looked pretty pale, and uh, he called his dad, who was a pharmacist, and, and he described uh, how I looked, and His dad said, well, he better go get his blood count checked, you know, because it said I was taking these these over-the-counter things they were giving me. And sure enough, my hemoglobin was 6 and my hematocrit was about 18. That's less than half of the normal red cell volume trying to show up for track practice. (laughs) So right away, that was – I'm off of that stuff. But, you know, medications – rarely have a role in treating any overuse injury because the body is eminently designed to repair itself as long as you support it correctly. Uh, proper rehab, uh, proper progressive loading of the structure. So it's very specific to each tissue, you know, whether it's a ligament, a tendon, a bone, you know, a joint capsule, you know, a muscle. So fascia, insertions, you know, they so, it's like all injuries are not alike. You know, there's a whole spectrum of you know, bones have a spectrum of, of repair versus a muscle versus a tendon. So if someone really doesn't if they kind of group everything into one thing. I think right there, you kind of know they just don't get it. So yeah, I think most runners kind of know if someone's kind of speaking their language and they're being very specific and they're very detailed in the exam and trying to differentiate what is the diagnosis. You know, so don't call if someone calls something a shin splint right there. They don't know <laughs> what they're doing because that's a symptom you know i mean most of them are stress fractures you know or stress fractures in the making or you know chronic exertional compartment syndrome or, or some other injury that you know you're going to need to figure out why you've got it not treat the symptom i mean you really got to figure out what the imbalance is what the weakness is or is it just overtraining, you know, which isn't
1: uncommon yeah i think that's true and often we are too quick to kind of jump to one thing to assume that was what kind of caused the problem and you know let's let's get rid of the problem and then I'll be fine. I'll worry about that later and then we never actually go back to it. So good that you mentioned that, you know, you do actually have to figure out what weakness it is, if it is a weakness, but most likely cause the issue. So that was helpful, I'm school. sure.
0: <laughs> One other thing, if they want to throw you in an orthotic right away too, <laughs> a flag. Yeah, we're starting
1: to hear that
0: more and more. <laughs> the foot is magic. The foot is... You know, gosh, you've got twenty six bones, thirty three joints that all have to work correctly to deal with the forces of running and the function of running. So if you just decide, well, something's hurt, just brace the foot up. You know, I mean, just think about that. Not a good idea. Mm-hmm. Not a good idea. So if that's the reflex of, of anyone, I think, right there. That's sending you down a road of doom. Mm-hmm.
1: Okay. Well, let's let's kind of talk about that a little. Uh, so you you do run barefoot, correct? Is that? Yes. All the time? Do, but... Every time? No, I mix it up. You know, if I'm out in the summer, I love
0: running barefoot. I mean, it's it's fun. I mean, for no other reason than that. I mean, just people like will say, well, why do you do that? You know, there's no study showing it makes you faster or reduces injuries or something. But I mean, it's not what it's about. It's it, it's fun. I mean, it, it, you're touched it touch with the ground. It, it, think about like when you're a kid, It just it's fun. You go out and live near a golf course. So there's nothing more fun than going out on the golf course and running in my bare feet at like six in the morning. It's a a smooth road running barefoot. And for me, it's kind of the reset because I know if I can run barefoot on pavement, everything's working. You know, if I can't do that because something's a little bit sore, it's kind of my reset. It's like, okay, I got to slow down. That's how I recover in bare feet. Because like the day after a hard uh, marathon, I'll take my shoes off because you can it can't overdrive your feet. You know, you could put some big heavy shoes on, big cushiony shoes, and just keep loading up your dysfunction because you got this big crash pad. So I think it teaches people something. I mean, it'll teach, yeah, just try it. I mean, I i don't know what else to say. It's fun. Try it. People are pretty out of touch with how their body works. Most of muscle and motor control is, is in local control of the fascia. Which is controlled neurologically from proprioception, which doesn't involve your brain. So the more proprioception you have, all of these micro adjustments that happen, you know, to basically all of the, the the muscles controlling running, happen. So you have much more connection. You know, it's a, it's a learning process. So I, I don't tell anyone who's really dysfunctional in their feet and weak to go run barefoot. You know, because they need to strengthen their foot. So I have some prerequisite tests. I'll make sure people can do. You know, even before they start walking, they'll their barefoot. You know, because if they just keep, you know, loading a dysfunctional, collapsed foot without understanding how to really recreate that arch. They're probably just going to contribute more to dysfunction. So, uh, again, I think uh, I think most of the naysayers are in the group of, well, I took my shoes off and, you know, just kept my normal training and I got hurt. Well, that's pretty obvious. Mm-hmm. You know, you're totally changing everything. So, I mean, I'm very gentle and progressive with people with that. The the day shoe probably has more impact to the foot and running than the running shoe because uh, I don't know about most of the listeners, but I walk more than I run. I have a job, so I'm on my feet all day, and gosh, I mean, I'm in the skinniest uh, walking shoe that I can wear, and I feel great at the end of the day. You know, I feel energized at the end of the day. Uh, You go faster in shoes. No kidding. uh, You know, run the Boston Marathon. uh, You know, I run with a Newton shoe. It's amazingly light. It's got a—it's not soft, so it's got a firm— Uh, responsive feel. I I like that shoe for me. It's tuned to me. Um, So I can, you know, fly down the hills a lot faster on unfamiliar roads. I don't know, which could have potholes and gravel and different texture with a shoe on. But in my backyard, I'll, one day I'll wear a shoe. If I'm on a gravelly or textured road, if I want to run on a smooth surface with the grass, I'll just go on my bare feet. And I think that's probably a good thing because I'm mixing things up know barefoot, I'm probably using things a little different with the shoes I'm using things a little different, and uh th- at the end of the day, it works for me, so whether it works for everyone i I don't know
1: so people if they did want to give it a try, I know uh we had Professor Dan Lieberman on here, and he told me to just just go outside and just do Let's it, it. <laughs> and yeah. uh I want to ask a little about uh just ta- transitioning in a second, but um how, just, just a question I'm curious about, like, how does it, if you're on pavement, how do the stones and the little rocks not hurt your feet? Or do they just become, like, callous to it? Or how does that work?
0: Uh, it's where, like, here's how I would suggest anyone starting it. I mean, first, just take your shoes off and walk around the house. Just spend more, walk, get the mail, you know, walk your dog and your bare feet. Various textures and surfaces. So yes, uh, gravel like we have a trail here called the C and O Canal. I do not run on that barefoot. It's little sharp stones, you know. So that that does hurt. Um, uh, my feet aren't. I mean, I can kind of jog slow on it, but you know, if I really try to stride out, it's it's the texture that matters. You could if you have smooth, smooth concrete. That's the most beautiful surface. It's really smooth. So yes, the texture matters. Our grass is a beautiful surface. I think people need to learn what's what's called slow jogging. And uh, a gentleman in Japan, his name is Dr. Hiro Tanaka. He's a head of the exercise physiology in University of Fukuoka. And he just wrote a book about this in Japanese. So what slow jogging is, most people put on their garment and they want to go like run some speed or pace and I'm going to go run 10 minutes a mile today. But what slow jogging is, is you're just jogging like ridiculously slow, but you're not walking. And um. If you can kind of visualize what that is. So say you have your dog and your dog is just kind of sauntering along because it's hot and you're not walking, but you're just kind of lightly kind of tap, 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 jogging at like whatever ridiculously slow pace that is. That really tunes everything in your springy system and your foot, you know, and you progress from there, you know, so that's, you can go out. That is so low impact. And it's easy and it's fun and you land really soft and you load really soft. So the problem most people do when they go barefoot run is because they're trying to run too hard. What they'll do is they'll come into the ground and they'll kind of stab their foot down in anticipation of the ground. So they'll kind of load their foot and that really torques the Achilles tendon. So you need to do the opposite. So most people reflexively will plantar flex, meaning they'll push their foot against the ground. But, you know, a pretty tuned barefoot runner, when their foot hits the ground, actually everything softens. And you have to trust that. You know, so, yeah, I'm going to trust that. But that's a training effect. So the really slow jogging, what you're trying to teach your body is, I mean, just think about what you're doing to the Achilles. If you have two and a half times your body weight coming into the ground and now you're plantar flexing your foot into the ground while you're, you know, forefoot landing is not good for your Achilles tendon. You want to soften. You're basically like a spring you know, you're going to soften into the ground, load, but start slow. And, you know, the way I started, uh, I carried, I had, you know, fair light shoes. I'd go run quarter mile, bare feet, put the shoes on. And the, the reason I started just all out barefoot was because I'd been running in all these minimal shoes. And there was actually a, a lecture I gave with Dan and Irene Davis at the Boston Marathon. I think it was like 2011. And they wanted me to give a talk with Dan and Irene on barefoot running. And I respectfully said, well, I don't run barefoot. I run in shoes. And they said, well, come give the talk anyway because you run in those minimal shoes and that's the same as barefoot. And I you know, respectfully disagreed. I said, no, I don't think they're the same thing. <laughs> so I took my shoes off and I learned to run barefoot. And after about three months, you know, I went from a quarter mile to, you know, I really don't need the shoes anymore. But it was a slow process. I haven't turned back, I'll I'll use shoes, I'll use barefoot. I use it as a training tool with people because I think if people can learn to run in their bare feet and have strong feet, they're resilient, and they could probably put any shoe on. Um, They'll learn a lot about their body, and plus it's fun. So, I mean, I, I run because it's fun. I don't really care how fast or PRs or any of that. I'm 48, so I just want to stay healthy and have fun
1: and I'm sure a lot of our listeners are actually in the same boat as you and you know kind of uh getting to the point where PRs may be well lifetime PRs may not be in realistic anymore so are looking for other channels to enjoy running and try new things so like you said give it a go but you know take your time and try it so I just want to ask you quickly about work shoes you said about you know people being barefoot as much as they can and we did have Dr. Ganjemi, a few weeks ago, who is barefoot um, during his work, but what about people who are in a situation where they can't walk around barefoot? Are there any specific shoes you would recommend for people or style of shoes that would be better than others?
0: Well, for lifestyle, most of us walk. So get a very thin, like Vipo Barefoot makes lifestyle shoes. They're called Lens. I have a small shoe store, and I think probably half of our shoes are lifestyle shoes that go out the door because they feel good. You know, people who are on their feet, you know, we have nurses wearing five fingers, ultras, New Balance Minimus, you know, while walking on the job, you know, uh, Merrill has flat shoes. So basically anything that's just flat, flexible, wide toe box, and isn't uber soft, because that softness, you know, probably one of the biggest problems I think runners have is they go try to recover in their soft running shoe. And just think about physiologically and anatomically what the foot is doing. So if you're standing on a marshmallow all day, standing, your muscles are really, they're overactive and your foot is trying to stabilize itself. So you see all these runners recovering in their big wedged heel running shoes. And then they're wondering why they all have plantar fasciitis, and Achilles tendinosis. So recover in a flat, thin shoe while you're walking. You know, walking is hard to hurt yourself. It's one time your body weight on the ground, but you can do a lot of strengthening of your foot. While walking, so that's kind of, you know. There's, and then it's all about just style. Some people can wear like non-corporate-looking things to work, and other people have to look a little more professional. You know, I have worked in West Virginia, so I can wear Lems. People barefoot, you know. It's half of my hospital now has a similar shoe because it's kind of like a drug. They're like, you know, if one nurse will wear the thin shoe, and and then she'll tell, so I don't need to say a thing. You know, they just all start, you know, sharing the love about it. Because they're on their feet, nurses are on their feet, 12-hour shifts in concrete. And uh, there was this trend of everyone wanted to wear these dance goes for a while, but most people hated them. I don't know if you know what those are. They were kind of these traditional surgical OR shoes, big uh, clog and flexible shoes. But they're really horribly uncomfortable. And when people got out of those and went to another brand is Barefooters, which is another kind of a firm clog, almost like a croc but much firmer, not so mushy soft. And your feet, they have these little kind of activator pods. You just have to try it. 12-hour mm-hmm. shift on your feet, your body will tell you if it's the right thing.
1: Oh, yeah, sure. And I, I will put a link to that, uh, the shoes you were talking about, in the show notes, which is at runnersconnect.net forward slash RC65. Um, okay, so let's go on to uh, talking a bit more about uh, training and running itself a bit more. Can you tell us a little insight on kind of mistakes runners tend to make in marathons from what you've seen in your experience?
0: So the Air Force Marathon is, is, is probably unique in that uh, they've got huge amounts of medical support from the Armed Forces side, and the weather's been very conducive over the last few years, so they've, uh, they've had very few medical incidents. But what you see in most major marathons, and what I just, I'm a race director too, I race direct a marathon uh, in the fall, which has a half marathon, 5K and 10K also, and in the spring have another half marathon event with a 5K associated. But, you know, the, the one thing we all fear is cardiovascular events. And that, you know, you'll read in the paper, you know, every couple months, headlines, you know, someone dies at a marathon. And it's usually someone with undiagnosed coronary disease. And so uh, one of the things if you're direct a race or you're announcing a race that I really discourage you to never, ever do is something like this. So say what's Boston qualifying? Say it's like 310. I don't know what it is, depending on your age group. 330. You know, if you're an older age group, more at risk of cardiovascular disease, and it's 329 and 30 seconds, or something like that. And the guy or gal, it's usually a male because they usually have more undetectable coronary disease, and they'll usually drive themselves to unhealthy places, um, at least by the numbers more of the deaths are males. So they'll sprint because the announcer will yell, you can do it. You can break, you know, 330 or 310. Most of the deaths are in the last mile and probably they're driving themselves somewhere where they shouldn't be going. So I don't call my races races. I call them events because I want it to be more that community experience and I don't want anyone dropping. Now, I think the work at Tim Noakes has saved so many lives because Tim created the road race management guidelines for hydration, which is pretty simple. Drink when you are thirsty, period. <laughs> <laughs> and that's how I, I, gosh, I mean, that's my mantra too. you know. like, ran the Boston Marathon and what year was that 2013? No, 12 was really hot. Uh, that was, was like 90 degrees. And, you know, I didn't drink that much, but I poured a lot of cold water on my body and I finished just fine. It was like I don't know, 130th place uh, in the race. It was about 500th at halfway and just didn't slow down. Mm-hmm. I kept my pace and passed all these people. You know, but yeah, so do not over drink. And he, you know, after, I think her name was Cynthia Lucero died and uh, 10 years ago at the Boston Marathon, I think people finally woke up to what he had been talking about for 10 years. And now, like, everyone's on board. You know, first they want to throw you out of the room, then they start to think, they try it, and then, oh, yeah, that's the way it is. and mm-hmm. always has been. But, you know, as Tim can tell you that in his story, you know, he had to, you know, really go against the grain, so to speak, to get that through. So, and then proper heats, you know, so we have protocols. The races I direct, um, I have flow sheets about how to triage someone from hyponatremia or heat illness. If they come across the line and you have a confused uh, altered mental status runner, you know, okay, they could have hyponatremia or they could have heat stroke depending on the conditions. So you need to have what's called an ISTAT machine to measure serum sodium. And you have to have a proper way to rapidly cool someone and a properly trained person that understands who to put in the cooler. And basically, it's like, you know, how you cool a beer real quick, you dump it in some ice and stir it around. So we have at our races, they sell them at Tractor Supply. I have these 100-gallon, they're like the cattle feeders you know, <laughs> when you fill them with ice. And if, Yeah, no kidding. If someone is altered, you no know, high body temp, confused, you're going to dunk first, ask questions later, because that, that person could go down and die without, and they could be saved by a very rapid intervention of cooling. So mm-hmm. you will not do any harm by cooling someone that you think might have heat stroke.
1: So what should someone do if they, you know, a friend of theirs or someone they're running nearby, they kind of think, you know, they may have heat stroke or something's going on with them. Do you have any, you know, suggestions? Obviously, get the nearest medical professional, but what if there's not one uh, around? Is there a other method of like, you know, ice on the wrists or the back of the neck or something like that?
0: Yeah, so rapid cooling, if, if you don't have something really cold, so you need evaporation to cool, you know, so yeah, if the humidity is high, that's kind of out. Um, you know, conductive surfaces is the quickest way to cool. So cold against cold. So, you know, if you have a training partner and okay, so they're just, you feel something is really wrong with them and their skin is really hot and they're confused. I mean, okay, if you're trail running and you're near a stream, that's cool. You know, get them in that stream, rapid cool them. It'd be very hard to rapid cool someone without any cold water. You know, you could get into the shade, you could fan them. And if you have your cell phone, call 911 and get someone to them, but don't try to make them kind of run their way through that to the next aid station because that would be a good idea. Uh, Most major races will have aid stations every mile or two, it seems, these days, which is too much for water because people might drink too much. But it's probably good for heat stroke because you'd have an aid station every couple miles. But I think the key is is runners who line up for races need to, I send out emails to participants warning them of these symptoms, you know, giving them the guidelines, uh, you know, let people know, give them some clues before they start the race. You know, if you have these symptoms, don't you know, especially if the weather conditions are going to be bad. You know, so you know a few days out if the weather conditions are going to be bad, and then just like Boston Marathon a few years back, you know, they allowed you to defer, which was a smart thing. You know, so okay, go home and don't come back next year.
1: And with those symptoms that you mentioned, if someone, you know, this is them and they they feel a bit off, what symptoms should they specifically look for within themselves? You said about the, you know, hot skin and obviously feeling overheated. but Are there any other telltale signs that people can...
0: If you have a friend, because the the person who's affected won't know, anyone who's confused, anyone who just seems confused, they could have hyponatremia or heat stroke. And then, you know, so depending on the conditions, you know, then you have to kind of get a little history. So if it's a cool day and they're a five-hour marathoner and they've been drinking water at every age station and they seem a bit puffy, that person most likely is hyponatremic. Now, if it's a 10K in Falmouth where, you know, there's been notable heat illnesses, you know, that person did not have enough time to get hyponatremic, but they could fire the engine up. Heat stroke happens in the shorter events, not the marathons. You know, when the furnace is really firing, 10Ks, you know, Peachtree Road Race, Falmouth Road Race, you know, those type of races in the summer. Marathons, you know, you don't get the furnace going that hot. You know, you're, you're running a marathon. At least you shouldn't get it going that hot. <laughs> so look at the event, and then you know the risk. It's almost impossible to get hyponatremia in a 10K, you know, or 5K, or half marathon even. you got to be out there four or five hours.
1: Even if people were really drinking, uh, you know, a lot of water and kind of sweating in the hours before?
0: Yes. I mean, marathons, it's... It's almost unheard of in three-hour marathoners to get hyponatremia.
1: Interesting.
0: It's four hours, five hours, ultra you know, So Tim Noakes started to see it in the comrades. You know, I have my comrade shirt on here, just by chance. But, yeah, so that's uh, 56 miles across the African desert. That's a ticket to hyponatremia. <laughs> so he started seeing these cases. That's when he first discovered it. You know, I, I could check his work, but I believe that's when he first started to report it. You know, he writes about in the book Waterlogs. He describes it. And then they didn't know what this was. And, you know, he had this theory, and then he started to do some research at Comrades. And, you know, that transferred to the work over here in the States that changed all the guidelines. Mm-hmm. So Comrades, you know, they have these salty potatoes, which is probably a way out of hypodermia. It's one of the original fuels that the runners use there, boiled potatoes with a ton of salt. <laughs>
1: That's one of the things at the aid stations. Yeah. <laughs>
0: that Coca-Cola is rocket yeah. fuel, too.
1: Yeah, we've heard a uh, uh, recently in all the interviews with ultra runners, we've heard a lot about the uh, various foods they offer at the ultra station. Seems a uh, rather different from uh, <laughs> yes. marathon aid stations.
0: They <laughs> have cookies. And, but it, that's just a joyful race, you know. Yeah. You don't just experience the people. Mm-hmm.
1: So let's talk a little bit about ultra running. What about um? A lot of our listeners may have been considering ultra marathons, and do you have advice based on your experience or based on you know the science behind it of what runners could do if they are considering an ultra marathon
0: because i wouldn't consider myself an expert in ultra running you know i've dabbled in them a bit just to go you know every you know thing that's new and different it's a challenge and you know i think i would probably say this you know running a lot of ultras is not healthy kind of going back to the dave McGilbury thing but there's something like just to go do something you haven't done it as long as you understand, you better recover from that. I mean, that's why we live. You know, I mean, why do you go climb mountains? You know, things like that. So set a goal and train for it. But I, I'm really cautious about the people that get compulsive of running a lot of ultra marathons. And there was an excellent article, I think just this month's Outside Magazine, on all the ultra marathoners who are just fried. You know, so when they started to give prize money and have an ultra circuit and encourage people to run like 400 mile races a year like all out oh my gosh that's a ticket to disaster and read the article in outside it's maybe you could link to that one yeah, tina but just your eyes you know what happens these folks fall off the cliff i mean even running a, running marathons isn't healthy training healthy form is healthy but we all kind of know that's like monkey bar day you know okay this is probably not the most rational thing to go race 26 miles in the heat in boston but this is fun, you know, this is living. And then, you know, you go chill out for a month. But I respect the recovery of ultras. I'll do one a year. I mean, if I feel good. And I won't line up for one if I don't feel good. Because it just isn't worth it. I know I don't have any business being there. And good meaning I'm in a good space and you know, my life with, okay, I don't have eight projects due that month. You know, because the recovery is your sleep. And I think if you're trying to like line up and race an ultra, I'd, that month you've been on call 10 nights and you're not sleeping, it's probably not smart to even try to line up. You're just going to, you're not going to have fun. So f- find a time and space if you want to dabble in it. I think certainly, you know, make sure you can comfortably finish a marathon before doing an ultra. Mm-hmm. Uh, be very willing to walk. People, you know, want to run the whole thing, and that's ridiculous. You know, I've done, you know, quite a few ultras, and the art of walking smart. Walk early and often walk the hills, you know, so learn to be in a very efficient walker because that's how you're going to do well in an ultra is walk when you need to efficiently, refuel, get your heart rate down, use different muscle groups, rest the fascia, run, don't run till you're broken and then be forced to walk, <laughs> death walk. So walk early and run, you know, run toward the end and then you finish it and it's a good experience, you know, it wasn't this horrible death march experience you know to finish an ultra and the last half of it felt good it's just a fun
1: experience definitely and when you said about um you know ultras or even marathons and people shouldn't you know do them too often do you still feel that same way even if people aren't necessarily you know, taking it all out and they're kind of, you know, having fun out there and waving to friends and kind of taking their time a little bit. Is it still kind of, it's just the, the volume of 26 miles being the issue of, you know, 50, 100K, whatever uh, distance? Or is it That's the true. intensity?
0: It is a great question because the jury is out. You know, I mean, most people on your podcast probably have seen Levine's work and. You know, over exercising and too many marathons and ultra marathons might be contributors to coronary disease, atrial fibrillation, right ventricular dysfunction, pulmonary artery hypertension, a whole cascade of cardiac anomalies. Because I don't think the human heart was designed to race 26 miles. I mean, the first guy who did it died, and now we want to do this as a, <laughs> now we want to do it as a hobby. I mean, think about that. So scratch your head. So you know, I, I actually had all this stuff tested as part of a kind of preliminary trial because I was curious. I mean, I'm probably one of the few that have over a hundred thousand miles in my legs, you know, run over a hundred marathons, all of them under three hours, 95% of them under two fifty. you know, so, but all my training is mellow. You know, it's like the training is mellow outside of what I did before 2000 when I had my feet fixed and knock on wood, everything was good. You know, so for me, that volume Because I was curious, you know, I mean, I was like, all right, I'm reading all this stuff and I got two kids, you know, I want to know, you know, what's going on. So I think if you're a runner, you know, that might have a family history of coronary disease or like Dave McGillivray, if you're feeling what's called a challenge pain, uh, I'm sorry, a warning pain, not a challenge pain, I mean, we run up a hill, we feel that exertion, that's normal, but a a warning pain is something's different. You know, warning pain. Okay, my breathing is different. The symptom is different. If you're getting any of that, you better get checked out. So, again, everyone is unique. If you can really run a marathon every month with pure joy and recover and treat it as, like, a nice weekend hike, I think that's fine. But if you're trying to, like, run a sub-three-hour marathon every week for a whole year, you know, you set some bucket list thing like that, I don't think that's healthy. Mm-hmm. And you may not know what that's doing to you. You know, until several years later, and it's kind of a long-winded answer, but, you know, there's things we know, things we think, and things we have no clue. So it kind of falls with things we think and have no clue about what is the proper dose of marathon running. Mm
1: -hmm. And, and yeah, you, you know, you gave a long answer, but I think you gave some good insight there, and it, it makes a lot of sense what you just said. And just one more thing I wanted to ask about when it comes to you you said about, you know, the recovery runs and how important it is to take things slow. And We've had many guests on here um, who have talked about that. Um, And Matt Fitzgerald, I think, is the one that, you know, focused on it the most recently. But when it comes to easy running, what about the runners who are concerned that, you know, they're not going to lose weight by running slow? Can you talk a bit about how the uh, fat burning, how they'll actually be probably better off in that way, getting in the right zone by um, taking it slower.
0: Yes, yeah, so I think just to back up a little bit, and I think Tim Tim Ferris wrote this quote in the four-hour, either the four-hour chef or the four-hour body, because this is true, and Tim Noakes will we'll back this up, ounces are lost in the gym, pounds are lost in the kitchen. Ounces lost in the gym, pounds lost in the kitchen. So exercise is not for weight loss. Exercise is for health, make you feel good, It'll reduce the risk, and it's a treatment for so many of our degenerative and metabolic diseases, uh, psychiatric illnesses, anxiety, depression, but it's not a a specific weight loss tool. You would have to do, gosh, you burn more calories when you sleep than in your one hour of cardio. (laughs) So what exercise does do, it sensitizes us to insulin. So it allows us to tolerate a little more carbohydrate, um, but it's not, you don't calories to lose weight. You need to burn body fat by reducing insulin. So if people are overweight over fat and their goal is to lose weight, now, they may not, I think our culture wants people to lose weight because they're trying to fit into some societal model which may not be healthy. So again, if I'm a physician and I'm seeing someone or a friend or a runner, you know, I have a store and people are coming and asking questions. I mean, why do you want to lose weight is the question. Because you're perfectly healthy. You know, So I discourage people that don't need to lose weight from losing weight. You know, it's called the female athlete triad, and, you know, by some of your listeners that have been down that journey too. So, but again, a lot of people, okay, they, you know, they enter some contest because they're, they, you know, need to lose 50 pounds and they watch like biggest loser on TV, which is pretty tragic in what they show that people beating themselves up with three hours of cardio. I don't think that's what they want to do. Actually, if you exercise too hard, that's, not good for losing weight because what will happen is, so I'm sure, you know, Matt Fitzgerald, you know, his work too with 80-20, you know, so you need to be below that ventilatory threshold to really be able to access fat as fuel. If you need quick access fuel, you got to use sugar. I mean, that's just the way it is. Um, So if you're trying to lose weight and you're doing a lot of hard, hard, hard work and you're not eating the sugars, your body will make sugar from protein. And that's not what you want to do. So what will happen is you will start to use muscle to fuel your workout. And then ultimately your body, this is about, I can spend a day on this. I do it with medical students. The science of obesity is fascinating because your body will, will defend the obese state in hormonal ways that most people don't even have an inch of understanding. So you do not want to burn your muscle by losing weight because someone told you to exercise hard. Because in an hour of exercising hard, you burn more calories than by exercising easy. Therefore, it's better for weight loss. True for the short term, bad for the long term. So if you actually want to lose weight, exercise easy. Often, and it's called NEAT. You know, this is another Levine thing. It's non-exercise activity thermogenesis. Look it up. NEAT. So the people that have the most NEAT are the people that are going to, that's like living. You know, that's. Well, people, like someone who's waiting tables, is going to have a lot of needs. You know, there are 20,000 steps a day. Um, I spent two days with my son at Cedar Point this week, you know, riding roller coasters. My iPhone said I had 20,000 steps in this park, you know, going from roller coaster to roller coaster. That's called need. I didn't need to run those days. You know, it's, it's non-exercise uh, thermogenesis. So those are the things you want to get people to ramp up their don't-sit do not sit, get rid of the chair, you know, sleep, because cortisol and lack of sleep drives obesity and hormonal ways that we're just beginning to understand. There's so much to it, and I think people who are really trying to lose weight need to talk to someone who, who gets it and understands it, because here's, I think uh, Einstein said this, what, what do they call persisting at something that continues to fail? It's called insanity, and that's <laughs> what we... It is, and that's what we kind of, well, you're not trying hard enough. Exercise more. Eat less. Deprive yourself of something. Spend another hour in the gym. It's not working. We'll try harder. We keep doing this. It's, you know, obesity, running, and fitness are completely different topics, and we somehow have to not tell people run to lose weight. or start. You need to lose weight, start running. Run for joy, for health. If weight loss is a goal, then you need to understand how to eat for your metabolic type sure running is a is a tool to help you become insulin sensitive but it's not you can't just run uh, you know run your butt off if you're trying to lose weight off the backside it won't happen that
1: way excellent summary there that's exactly the kind of thing i wanted to um you to summarize to end this up and you know you did it perfectly and i think that really explains it in a in a understandable way that people can really you know take to heart and actually start to follow Yeah, like you said, that's really misunderstood in our society. So great, great round up there. And, um, you know, I've learned so much in this interview and uh, I'm sure our listeners have too. Uh, So I just have one more question for you and then I will let you get on with your day. I've asked every guest that I've had on the show this year and I'm going to ask you now if you could give me one word to describe what you would like to become, accomplish or achieve this year, what would it be and why?
0: I hadn't thought about that, but probably kind of what we're doing in our community with nutrition and low income is, is revolution, you know, a real, uh, real meal revolution. You know, it's that have words used a lot, but really to change society, change health, it really is a revolution. And so we're uh, starting a program here in West Virginia to double SNAP benefits, which is food stamps at farmer markets with federal funds and nonprofit funds so people can have better access to healthy food, learn to eat healthy food you know, have activities, you know, all of our kids' uh, runs are open to free for kids. So just starting, it all is bottom-up, you know, community. But the revolution has to start with a community and saying, we have a problem here that we need to fix because the government's not going to fix it for us.
1: Mm-hmm. And you've definitely been doing your part to uh, start that up.
0: No, thank you. Yeah, but We have good teams out here, and the message spreads. It's kind of cool.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's awesome. And I I look forward to following how it does and how you do in the future with West Virginia. And maybe you can keep branching out and you can uh, jump into Kentucky next.
0: (laughs) The CDC, the same bad color.
1: Yeah. (laughs) Um, So, Mark, I want to thank you for coming on the show again. I really enjoyed talking to you and uh, I'm sure our listeners will enjoy it, too. So thank you very much. Okay. have a great night. So if you're interested in any of the topics we talked about today, Mark and I discuss quite a few links. You can find them at runnersconnect.net forward slash rc65. If you enjoyed today's podcast and have been enjoying it for a while, I'd really appreciate it if you could leave us a review on iTunes and subscribe. I know not everyone uses iTunes, but unfortunately, iTunes really does rule the rooster. And that is the easiest way to help us rise up the rankings. On the show notes, there's a video demonstration of just how to do that. I hope you have a great week of running and I look forward to talking to you soon.